Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right. Welcome back, everybody. So today I have a very, very special guest. His name is Drew Horning, and he is the co-host of this podcast. Drew, good morning. Welcome to the show. Ah, Sharon, thank you very much. And my special guest is Sharon Moore. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Well, thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. What are we going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Drew and I, just some background, Drew and I trained together as Hoffman teachers. And it's almost like, I mean, you really can't compare it to being in the trenches together, but oh man, it's the emotional trenches together. That's for sure. Yeah. I remember saying to Davey, um, this is the kind of personal growth training that I would pay money for. This is a transformative process in and of itself to train to be a teacher. And quite possibly for me personally, the most transformational that I've done. And I had done a lot before I even came to Hoffman as really? a student. Really? The, the training was one of your more transformative experiences? For sure. Wow. All of it, for me, I, I did the process and then became a teacher all within a span of a year. I remember that. Yeah. So, so you know, it's, it's the process, the training to be a teacher, all of it was one of the biggest transformations of my life. And that's so general. And this is the challenge I face as a podcast host is how do we help our guests take an idea of like the biggest transformative, transformational thing I've done in my life and bring it down into reality? So what does that mean for you on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis? It's a hard thing to define because it's not so tangible, but I would say since that year of both being a Hoffman student and training to be a teacher, I am the person I want to be in every aspect of my life. It doesn't mean I don't have ugly moments or moments I wish were different or uh, moments where I'm back on the, you know, to use Hoffman terminology, left road. But really, truly, in all aspects of my life, I am who I want to be. I am who I always wanted to be. So that's hard to, I would, for me to give you traits is much tougher than for me to just say to you, I am who I always wanted to be. I love that sentence. I am who I always wanted to be. But is there, a, is there an example that illustrates that? Well, I found love. Um, and I'm in the relationship that that is something I never imagined I would be able to show up for. So I can be vulnerable. I can recognize what's happening for me. And rather than lash out, recognize that it's happening. In my world of, of my work, I'm able to draw boundaries, I'm able to speak up, I'm able to show up more genuinely. 
you know, and, and again, as I'm saying all of these, of course, where my mind goes, probably my dark side is like, uh, uh-uh, let me, don't you remember this? So immediately what's in my head is the moments that that doesn't happen. But I, I genuinely know that those are so less frequent and they don't last as long. Sharon, I remember at, during our training, which for people who are listening, the training to be a Hoffman teacher takes two years, two years. And I remember during the first part of it, where we were is sort of the classroom setting, and then there's the working with students alongside a teacher setting. But the classroom work at the beginning, and as I got to know you, it seemed like every time we met, you would say, I'm dating someone new. I'm dating someone new. Hey, man, it was a journey. It was a journey. And you found love. I did. And each one of those were were getting closer and closer to who I needed to be and who I needed to be in order to attract the right person. But yeah, this this is true. Oh, man, I miss those training days. You know, when, when the facilitator says, okay, I'm going to break you up into pairs. I remember noticing I didn't care who I ended up with because I loved every one of us. Wow. Yeah, I was like, cool, whoever you're going to put me with, I can't wait. Yeah, you know, and and one of the things that's happening is that we all identify as teachers in part based on what cohort we trained with. And so you and I will always have this affinity of being in the same cohort, going through the same training, becoming certified around the same time. We are our cohort and the four other people, Steve, Lori, Chris, and Nita, we're a cohort together. Drew, tell me about you. How do you, between you taking the Hoffman process and going through the training, was there a long time? Um, you know, I'm distracted by what I was thinking about because <laughs> it's one of the things I like about the Hoffman transformation circles is that it gives that experience of being in a cohort. There are eight students who meet every other week online on zoom. And it's, it's could be my new favorite thing to do given we, we haven't been teaching in a while, but just to lead these cohorts of eight grads um, through a journey and to come back every other week after there's something about returning to the group after having been away and lived life for two weeks and now you're back together that I really like. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about. You were thinking that we that's a similar experience to our training? Yeah, in the sense that we're a group and we're going through life together. You know, I was a therapist for years and so I, I had all of the jargon and the language and the orientation of change and personal growth. And um, a friend of a friend recommended the process and I didn't know much about it. I was struggling in my marriage, uh, kind of not sure what was next. I had done therapy for as a, as a therapist for years, for 15, almost 20 years. And I was just kind of looking for what was next. So feeling a bit of being lost. And then the second thing would be trying to figure out what was happening in our marriage. We had young kids 
and it was a struggle. And so I took the process and uh, midway through the week, I remember thinking, who are these people? Like, what is this? Like, what the heck is going on? What, what I, I remember being like, what is happening to me, to the people around me? And in this kind of awe, that was a cellular experience of, of seeing kind of a meta of what was happening. And so I came out of the process and I was like, golly, I don't know how this is going to inform me professionally, but I'm really drawn to it in some way that I can't even put words to yet. And the fact that I can't put words to it yet is, is kind of cool. <laughs> so, so they started a training I remember having a conversation with Raz, who was my teacher, and him saying, we're starting a training. I think you'd be a great teacher. I'd like you to apply. And being like, I am in. Let me know. And it, and I think it was about a year later. I so relate to I have a video of me um, after my process. They gave us back our phones. As we all know, I drive out of the White Sulphur Springs, and I'm videoing with my phone and my voice says something to the tune of welcome to the rest of your life or so something, something implying like I am now driving back into a new life. And you videotaped this? I videoed it. I don't even know why. That's not even something I do. I, you're like, a, you're, you're thinking about your influencing crowd. I need to record this moment for my followers. <laughs> the huge amount of followers. Sharon, are you videotaping yourself or are you, you videotaping what you, the scene you're driving to? It's just the scene. It's, I've never done it since and I didn't do it before. I don't know why I did it, but you hear in my voice. So you don't see me, you just see what I'm seeing. And I, I think I wanted to capture the sight. I wanted to capture, I don't know, that moment. And here I am driving and you see the scene from my windshield and you hear my voice and you just hear in my voice this knowledge that my life is going to be different from here on out. Oh my God, we got to put this in the show notes. We got to put this a little- well, I don't you... know where that video is. And you, are oh, you saying yes, you do. Yeah. I mean, I could probably find it based on date, but yeah, it's pretty- it's it's alarming to me because I can hear the change in my voice. This is the thing I love about the Hoffman process is so many people talk about change. I mean, the the self-help book movement alone is like a bazillion dollar industry. And so change is tossed around. And what, it's just one of the things I love about the process is it's a it's a cellular, visceral immersive experience and it holds you in ways that come across for example in the tone of your voice and i think as teachers we get to relive if we are open to it you get to relive it every single time and i do think that even still every time i go to the process i end up getting a message that i need even though i'm there for the students and i'm obviously doing a job of teaching there is something I get every time I'm there. And it's like I'm not even aware of the th thing I need that week until towards the end of the week. I, things I'm like, oh, that's a, okay, this is, you know, for example, I'll, 
I won't even know that I need some wisdom around parenting my two kids. And something happens that week where I'm like, oh, that is it. Yes. And I go home so kind of excited and warm and open hearted to that new transformation. It's cool, isn't it? Do they see it or is it an internal? You know, I think they see it. Uh, I think they see it. And for me, it's, you know, I hop on the plane on Friday and coming back to Colorado, it, it used to have, when, when they were younger, they would go to bed earlier. And so by the time I got back at 10 o'clock, they were asleep. So it was a, always a Saturday morning thing, uh, wake, waking up uh, to them climbing in our beds and that kind of weekend thing. And now it's kind of a Friday night uh, experience of connecting. But those are, those are wonderful moments. And I also come back sometimes like, let's talk. We need to process do they go there with you? Uh, yes, yeah, sometimes I think they're a little overwhelmed. And even Jenny, my wife, is sometimes a little overwhelmed. But but I'm always practicing a little breath and uh, enjoying the moment. What about you? What's it like for you? Well, what, what, what you make me realize is that by us being teachers, it is an adventure everyone goes on with us. They don't know who they're going to get. Are they going to get the Drew or the Sharon that wants to process? Are they going to get the Drew and the Sharon that want to party because they're back home? Are they going to get the Drew or the Sharon that's just kind of wiped out? We all go on this adventure and there's so much unknown. There's unknown for us as teachers going into it. Hmm, what's the lesson I'm going to learn this week? Because we all know we're going to have one. And then there's just so much mystery and unknown and togetherness. It's uh, you, you, your homecoming story made me realize how much this is a communal thing and our people have to be on board and support us doing this work. It's, it's it, cause it's a, it's a compromise on their end in a way, and it's a surrender on their end. I love that. I love that. You know, there's a, a teleclass coming up on how to be with a loved one who hasn't taken the process, but there could be a teleclass on how to be with a loved one who is a Hoffman process teacher. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Would be well attended. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, as you were saying that I was thinking one of the ways I experience it is like some, some weeks I'll be like, you know, it's all about play. It is all about play. We need to play more in our lives. I need to play more in my life. And then other weeks, I'll be like, I remember coming home one time and all week long, I was just inspired by uh, submission or surrender and, and like seeing the world in submission. Everything is submission or surrender. That's the key. And it's like I go on these, um, a certain part of the process will live with me during the week and, and live with me when I get home. It's a weird dynamic. Do you relate to that? Ish, ish. I don't have as extreme of a, of a relationship, but I do, I do have themes that continue with me. But it's interesting, as you were saying that, what I was thinking is if Drew was in my, let's say I'm doing a student talks on day 
six. And Drew comes in as a graduate. And I say, do you have anything to say to the graduates? Do you know what you would say? Yeah. So I remember when graduates um, came to the process and being so in awe of who they were and what they offered to say. I remember one grad said, the process for me wasn't about what I took. It was about what I left behind. And then he walked off. And I remember thinking, whoa, I have never heard something as profound in my life. And, and I could only guess at what he meant, but it felt powerful. So if I had to ask that question, that's a good, it would be. Yeah. What would you say if you were a graduate, which we traditionally, if there are graduates in the audience, we ask them to speak for a minute or so and say how they know the process still lives with them. Yeah. I know the process lives inside of me because the single most important thing in my life is self-compassion. And that becomes the fulcrum by which my life goes well or not so well. The indicator is how kind am I being to myself? And you could almost bet that when I'm struggling, it's because I'm lacking compassion for my experience. Was that an area that uh, you didn't have a lot of pre-process? Yeah, you know, I, I have said to students, if you're going to do personal growth work, if you're going to step into this, whether it's in coaching or the transformation circles or even sometimes at the beginning of the process, I said, if you're going to do it, but you're not going to consider the value of compassion for yourself in this experience, you probably shouldn't do it. You probably should just say no, because the amount of weaponized awareness out there is dangerous. And for me, I'll speak for me personally, every insight I had, I used against myself. In some way, I found a way to not maybe right away, but I eventually found a way to turn it against me as uh, reasons for why, well, you know this, why haven't you done it? Or will you get this? So what's wrong with you? I just found a way to weaponize epiphanies. What about you? Your turn. Sharon Moore, come on up. Speak to the students about one way you know the process lives inside you. Isn't it funny that I haven't considered this question? Like, this is the first time I'm thinking about that. I feel like we get in these mini conversations with our students who will ask us pointed and specific questions during small group or during the, throughout the, the week. I think it would be, for me, really surrendering to spirit and just rather than trying to define, control, know what lies ahead, surrendering to spirit. And I know that sounds general or kind of um, very vague, but it's, it's, it's true. I'm used, to, I'm used to defining things. I'm used to planning things. I'm used to controlling things. And um, this allowed me to let go into spirit. E even how I became a teacher 
is a, a great expression of that. I'm not great with emails. I don't check my emails. I'm, I, this is one of my things. I don't do that well. And apparently the announcement for the job of the fact that they were hiring teachers came out in email. I didn't get it. I coincidentally had a conversation with one of my uh, fellow Hoffman students maybe a day or two before the applications were due. And because of that conversation, I then looked at that email. I think there was an introductory call or an informational call. I got on that call and Davy was on there and she was one of the teachers. She wasn't my teacher, but she was one of the teachers in the process I was in. And she's like, is this the Sharon, da, 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 whatever, some sort of clarifying question. And she gave me such a vote of confidence. I don't even remember what she said, but energetically, I felt like she was cheering me on. Like, you should apply. And I don't know, it was one thing to the next. I was living in a temporary place. I went to my office, recorded the video. All these things just lined up um, that felt so beyond my control. But this was one or two days before the deadline. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was a quick turnaround. But again, I think that was part of the blessing is no over intellectualizing. It was a lot more spirit led. A student sent me this quote from Richard Rohr, a grad who I'm working with in the transformation circle, sent me this quote from Richard Rohr that says, because I thought about it when you said this about deepening your connection to your spirit. Richard Rohr says, all problems are psychological and solutions spiritual. I was like, whoa, that, I love that. That was, I think, for me, the, the surprise in the work of this deepening connection to spirit. It's like, what is this thing called my spirit? You know, we, can, we could analyze it for eons, but to give students and for me to have an experience of that is just unbelievable for me it was a combo because for me just the topic of spirit alone without the actual body and psychology it, it was the the marriage of of our bodies of psychology and of spirit is why i think for me and for the students that i see the real transformation happens Body, psychology, and spirit? Yeah. In, in my life before the process, I didn't really, ironically, I didn't once go to mother, father. I didn't once go to um, the, the Western, you know, the psychology didn't play as big of a role for me, actually. And the body had no role for me. And the process brought all that together for me. Can we... Can we dig in a little? Because I was one of my favorite questions to ask of guests of the podcast is set the scene. Take us to a moment in time. Where are you? What's happening around you? What are the smells, the sensations, the location? What's happening inside you? Do you have a moment in your process that feels powerful like that? Yeah, um, I have two. The most powerful one is dark side for me. I think up to that point, I hadn't totally let go. And when it was me talking to my dark side and looking at those words, and they were harsh words, you know, around me being a parent, around me being gay, 
around my hatred of that, around my just mean, cruel words that my dark side that I hadn't even realized I'd been living with all my life. And I cried for the entire 45 minutes. And crying is not an easily accessible expression for me. And uh, one, of, one woman who was in the dark side, you know, one of the students who was sitting right across from me said that she saw me and every time she looked up, she just saw just this face, tears and tears and tears for 45 minutes. I, it's hard to put into words. I understand now why our guests have sometimes a hard time. It is hard to put into words. It was such a opening and one of the most raw moments I've had in my life. And I've been a seeker all my life. So this isn't a, I'm not one of those people that I've never done work on myself. This is my first time. No, I've done a ton, but this was probably the rawest I've, I was able to get. Wow. So you cried off and on for 45 minutes. Yeah. And this is a person who doesn't cry. Yeah. And it just came out because those words were, oh, cruel. And, and also the um, price. At that point, I was, I don't remember how old I was, but the, the price, you know, having, having made decisions for so long in my life that at this point there was a cost, there was a real price tag. And that at the connecting of those two things is, is uh, just kind of stopped me in my tracks and all I could do was cry. Those were like really transformative and kind of detoxing tears as well, huh? Yeah. And I don't know. There was one other time that I felt that, and I think it was when we were, I don't remember. Oh, I must have been observing a process or when Davey took us to do our own dark sides when we were in our training. I can't remember. But um, that, that opened it up a little bit for me again, but nothing like it when I was in the actual process. That dark side is, that's a powerful one for me. Yeah, one of the things I love about the process is it really combines these two disparate, really extreme, almost polar opposite qualities. And one is power, and the power of expressive work, the power of voice, the power of our body being engaged in this work. And the other one is humility, being humble. And when you were describing those tears, I thought, what real humility in the face of the cost of what had happened in your life up to that point. It's crazy how if I hadn't done that, I would have just continued down that path. The cost would have become more expensive. Yeah, the reckoning. I mean, the reckoning that is the Hoffman process. It's a freaking reckoning. You know, in my process, it would be um, the day before, which this happens so often. You have grads who come out and say, remember Tuesday? And I was like, oh, no, that was actually Wednesday. They're like, no, I think it was Thursday. And it's like, no, that was Monday. Anyway, I didn't know what the heck had happened in my process, which day was which, but it turns out it was Wednesday and it turns out it was um, vindictiveness. And I remember engaging in expressive work in a way, well, first Raz looked me in the eye 
in my morning check-in with him and paused and said, you can do this. You can do this. And I remember like, like swallowing hard in that moment of like, oh my God, I got this. I got this. It was so good. And then we go to this experience and I remember using my voice and being engaged in this expressive experience, which is, I had done a lot of personal growth, a ton of therapy and coaching and even some more experiential outdoor retreats, but I hadn't really done expressive work. Was your Hoffman experience the first time you had done expressive work? Probably, yeah. I mean, now it's just like, duh, but yes, to think back and realize, yes, it was. I know. And it's so, you know, if you had asked me before the process, what, as a therapist, what's your take on expressive work? I would have definitely hedged and um, probably said, I don't know, like, to what end? And really, do you need to do that? But I'm a believer now as a part of a larger thing. Expresses work in and of itself, no. But it, when it's connected to the cycle of transformation, absolutely. And so I'm engaged in this expressive work. And I remember scaring myself a little bit like, oh God, I'm really fired up here. I'm really using my voice and felt a little fear at that. And then the expressive work finished and we engaged in a kind of self-compassion, compassionate part of it. And the music comes on and they, the teachers lead us through this guided visualization. And later I would find out that the song was Angel Love. And I'm curled up on a pillow in a really sweet moment. And this music comes on. Oh my God, I'm going to tear up now. And, and they start to share that you are loved. That despite all this stuff that has happened, despite all this darkness, you are loved, you are held in this cradle of love. And I, I could not stop crying. I just started tearing up because the feeling of um, surrender, I could, the feeling of being loved, of feeling the um, self-compassion, of feeling self-love, despite all the darkness that I had just, just puked out of me, um, I just bawled. And um, later, you know, people came up to me and was, they were a little worried about me or a little wanted to check was I was okay. I said, I'm more fine than I've ever been in my life because I feel this surrender of, of love for myself and for the world around me. And for that moment, I will forever be grateful to those teachers, to Bob Hoffman, to the White Sulphur Springs site, to all my classmates. It's just, I can, you know, I tell students, grads, you will always have that experience. The cellular memory will always live inside you for what happened during this process. And for me, that's the moment that always lives inside me. Ooh. 
you just make me realize how, how powerful this work is. Especially as teachers, sometimes we're just sitting in the back, and if we're not leading it, we're doing the, the music. But we're not just doing the music. We are taking them on a journey. Case in point, your experience, when that music comes on, the depth that it opened up for you. Yeah, and I felt like the, all the things that I had done prior to that sort of set me up. You know, I couldn't have just created. It's one of the beautiful things of obviously many. I keep saying it's one of the beautiful things, but the, the fact that that was on uh, day five was, was so powerful. Oh, no, it was actually day six then because it was an eight-day process. And, and it's, there's, there's rhyme and reason for the fact that it's on day six. It's a journey to get there. Oh, I miss teaching. Uh, yeah, I know. I love that you just said that. So I taught in Connecticut um, probably three weeks ago. We were all wearing masks. It was so odd, strange, and yet normal at the exact same time. I, this is the, the, the work I see myself truly getting old. Like this, this is not something I'll ever leave. I remember you saying that, Sharon, during when we were training together, like our second training weekend, you're like, hey, guys, we're all, I think, at lunch. And you say, hey, guys, and we all turn. You're like, I just realized we're going to grow old together. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. That was so vulnerable to say and so, so true, prophetic. So true. Yes, we are. How, you know, how many other people do we get to look at knowing, oh, wow, we're going to be on the journey for a long time together. You know, you have done, you did a podcast before you co-hosted this and I have done my own podcast before I became a co-host. What do you like about being a host, what do you like about podcasts? Do you have a favorite podcast? Let's dig into podcasting for a second. Spirit-led. I don't even know that I have a rational uh, explanation for it. I felt very compelled with my podcast. It was around celebrating uh, women entrepreneurs who uh, incorporated spirituality or were spirit-led and were doing things that were improving our world. And it was like an overnight decision. And again, talk about spirit-led, literally like butter. I would say, I need a microphone. A microphone would show up. I need guests. Guests would show up. Whatever it was that I thought I needed, it was like a, a snap of the finger and, and it showed up. You know, I have, I have two things to say about that. I think on one hand, I'm so genuinely curious about people. It's not hard for me to engage in a conversation with people. So it does make sense that I'm involved in this. But on the other hand, sometimes, and you know this too, I need to hold myself to make sure this is not a form of hiding. This is not a form of continuing a pattern that I might have, which is celebrate others to divert attention from myself. So, so there's the two, it's the double edge. It's, it's, there's a use of my natural enjoyment and skill in it. And then there's careful, make sure that, that this is a, done in a balanced way. Yeah, that's great. Do you relate to that? I do. I now don't know if how much I relate to the hiding piece. I do know that I love conversations. I love them. I love questions and answers and interruptions and 
excitement and the intimacy of creating something that is not of you and not of me, but now we're creating a dialogue that is, that is changing us. We're it's instead of us taking the dialogue, the dialogue is actually leading us someplace. And I just love that. You know, I grew up in a family by my college entrance essay was on my dining room table and the conversations we would have around the dining room table. It was my formative, most memorable experience of my childhood is those wonderful dining room conversations where we digested topics of the day. We all shared and listened. I felt so at home at that dining room table. So this is, we're breaking bread together in a way as we have conversations with our guests. Did you, was your family unit like this where they dug deep and you talked about deep experiences and your feelings and your personal inner world? You know, um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was the third of four kids. And then at some point in my childhood, maybe I was five, six, my parents brought in a Vietnamese boy and ended up adopting him and he became a part of our family. And, and so now instead of four kids, there were five kids. And, you know, I remember him singing as a kid in the shower, like his Vietnamese songs and being just in awe of this different being in our house and loving him. And we being raised, something about being raised in DC in the late 60s, early 70s, and my parents were protesting the Vietnam War. And I feel like that became such a formative part of my childhood, like social justice. And so we would dig into, they would like introduce topics at dinner and we would um, talk about them and, and war and protesting and getting along and peace and music. My mom was a musician and it felt like my classroom along with my tribe at the same time. Actually, one of the things I learned in the process is one of the things I squared, because I couldn't square. How could I be raised in such a great childhood and have such a great childhood, be raised in such a great family and and have such patterns and feel like it was so dysfunctional. And I didn't realize this, but the process helped me hold both because prior to that, I would ping between my family is messed up. God, I come from kooky, weird and enmeshed parents and that would be the truth. And then at other times I'd be like, oh, I love my family. I love my parents. I love my siblings. I squared both and I now can hold both. What a great family. What a great upbringing. And so many patterns, so many patterns. Well, if that isn't one of the, I, I couldn't agree more. That is, that is a huge relief to not have to be on one side of that coin, to know that we are always on both sides of that coin, that we can have an amazing family and we carry patterns. That, that ability to yes and on that topic opens up the yes and on all other areas of our lives. I, I completely relate to that experience, Drew. Yeah, so, so 
I am really curious because the one thing I know about your childhood, and, and childhood is in quotes, it might be your past, is that you were in the Israeli army. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was young adult life. But yeah. Um, let's see. I, ha- I am the oldest of three, uh, born in Israel, like you said. And um, we. it's interesting now, obviously, being <laughs> full grownups and whatnot, I realize what a gift it was to the family culture was we ate dinner together. There was no negotiating. So it was similar to your dining room table. And I, I, I know as I look around that that is not necessarily a norm in all families. And um, I, I've really come to appreciate that. My childhood became an inner struggle more than anything else because I was uh, navigating my own sexuality from a very early age and raised in, I can't say conservative family, but raised in a family that was very traditional. Uh, immigrants, and it didn't allow for space to be a little bit different. And I was different. That was also my perception more than anything else. It was never said. So when I look back now, having done the work I've done, I do see how much of this was self-imposed on my part. But we're talking at least a good 10 years of those childhood years where I felt ashamed, where I felt alone. I was alone, literally. There was not a soul I could talk to about this. But why did you call that self-imposed? Because I didn't even give it a shot. Like, I, I, What if I had said to my parents, hey, I'm struggling, I'm in love with blah, blah, blah. I, I just internalized messaging from everywhere, external and internal. I, I didn't do any of my private development in in community it, with a mentor, it was all alone. I fell in love alone. I had my first heartbreak alone. I cried myself through the heartbreak alone. So I almost became masterful at putting on a game face. And all of the struggle was done by myself. Don't you think you looked out at your parents, saw the environment, and made an assessment like, uh, this ain't safe to bring up to these people. I'm not going there. (laughs) Yes, of course. That was 100% yes. And it was just a different time. I mean, I now look at gay youth and I'm like, oh my God, you have it so much easier. But they don't. It's a little bit easier because there's, there's more imagery that doesn't villainize. But they still have their family unit. And if it is a heterosexual uh, family unit, they, they, know they know that there is a coming. The, when you're a heterosexual, you don't ever have to come out. It's just assumed. For those of us who are not, you have to come out. So you have to change the dynamic, change the trajectory between these people who had no idea that this was going to happen. I don't know. It's a- I love that. You have to, when you say you have to change the trajectory, it's almost like you have to to square the internal and the external experience. Do you remember a coming out story? I mean, is that, that's a thing, right? What's, what's your coming out story? What's your coming out story? How, how was yours? How did it go? Well, um, it wasn't the easiest and it wasn't the easiest for a long time, like years. My first love was in high school, and we were secretive about it. This was in the 80s, so you can imagine it wasn't, 
it wasn't where we are today. And we were very secretive about it. And literally not a soul knew. So none of my friends, none of my family members knew I had fallen in love. None of my family members knew when we had hardships or when we broke up, which was truly heartbreaking for, you know, we all have the young love puppy love. I went to a gay pride parade in San Francisco my first year out of high school. So I was already 19. And at the end of that, I was in shock. I mean, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. You look around and you see parents with flags that say, I love my gay kids. You see um, groups of people with, with flags that said, you know, gay lawyers and all these normative things reflected back to you. And for me personally, I had never met a gay person. All I knew was the imagery and the villainized imagery of that, of what gay people were. So to see just quote unquote normal people at gay pride in the late eighties was a pivotal moment. And so much so that I felt empowered at the end, you land in this place with all these booths. And, um, at that point it was educational books, a booth. So there was pamphlets on, um, who are we? Why are we? And, you know, whatever research, limited research at that point there was. So I grabbed everything I could, put it in my bag, wrote a letter to my parents and came out of the closet. Oh my God. It was not easy. And they had no idea, of course, again, because none of us were exposed to this. It wasn't even in our, it was just not, it was something that is a thing outside of us. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a real topic. Um, and, and when you say it being gay, being gay, yeah, we didn't have gay friends. We didn't have gay politicians, gay teachers, gay, uh, TV personalities, nothing. So for all they knew it, like you, you might as well admit that you had the devil inside you. I mean, it poor, I, I really do feel for them too, because it was a process, you know, you said a coming out story. Well, what you learn is not only is there the coming out process for the person themselves, me in this case, but there is also the journey for the loved ones. So parents have their own journey around their coming out of their kids. Well, you have respect, it sounds like, for your mom and dad as they navigated that journey. Yeah, I have wishes that it was navigated differently. I have a whole lot of uh, additional pain that probably was unnecessary. But I like you said, the squaring of the internal, external, and the both sides of the coin, I simultaneously respect and honor the process they needed to go through. And thankfully, God, thankfully, we have arrived where I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined. We have arrived in a place where I don't even question, I don't live with that shame anymore. I don't live with that I'm causing them shame anymore. I don't live with that burden on my shoulders that what are they going to say when their friends say, oh, is, is Sharon dating somebody? You know, because they had to deal with that question just like I did, but I had perfected my deal around that. I would learn to read the room. I would learn when I could say the truth, or sometimes I would switch the pronouns. And even though I was with a woman, I would pretend I was with a man. Wow. That adept skill at kind of maneuvering around reality versus uh, expectations. Well, it was a skill, just like patterns. It was a skill that served me, and then it didn't. It served me in my ability to, in the younger years, when it did feel like life or death, which it wasn't, obviously, but that's what it felt like. I would read the room, and thankfully, my ability to read the room was 
was spot on. And so I knew when to reveal the truth and when not to. But the cost of that was me being my authentic self. I would be what you had capacity for. I would be what I read you to want me to be, but I wouldn't be my real self. And that was a journey to undo that. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, as a straight white male, <laughs> this, category of pe- these, this category of people, I'm imagining what it's like for you as a young girl, as you start to be drawn to other girls and yet know that that's not what's in the dominant culture. What was that like to notice this thing emerging inside you that wasn't at all in the world around you? How did you deal with that? I look back at it now and and I am amazed by the child I was, but I, I think it was the only reality I knew. I, and I still, to a certain degree, have a lens of translation, right? When you look out in the world, you see predominantly heteronormative imagery, messaging. It's still there. Yeah. And even, even as a Hoffman teacher, you don't think it hurts me to say mother and father? You know, that's, that's been something that I, that one of the first things I said, wow, I have mother and father. That was, we just went back some years when we say that. So there's a constant translation lens when I'm in conversation with people who are talking about their couplehoods or I will say we have, when it comes to being gay in the, I'm in California, that needle has moved. Oh my God. So much so, so much so. And in my particular case, I'm a white woman. So I have been on the receiving end of that noodle, that, that needle moving dramatically. I can now marry. I have, I, I rarely translate the pronouns. In fact, I shouldn't say rarely. I never translate pronouns and I never feel second class like I used to. And that is something in the last, I don't know, five to seven years or so. However, that same benefit is not really equal. If you are a person of color and gay, it's a whole different ballgame. And, and we as the white folks in the gay community have been called out on it. And I'm really happy we were and are and continue to be. And, and I think, I think as, as gay people, we know what it's like to be marginalized. We better show up with the ability to have, in the very least, empathy for other marginalized communities. I'm imagining that it's tough when a marginalized group of people is being told that they're not uh, embracing another marginalized group of people because it can be initially a little bit like, wait, I'm not oppressing. I'm the one that's the victim here. And that was a kind of reckoning for gay white women, wasn't it? If they took that on, yes. Just like you can feel you're a, you're a white, straight male and you have opened up to seeing the impact that you have, the privilege that you have, et cetera. But not I, all white, straight males are doing that. So it is an invitation and you do have to actively take it on. This is what I love, the connection between the work we do inside of us and how it impacts the world around us. Like I think doing the Hoffman process makes us better citizens 
because we understand empathy. We get compassion. We understand the role of courage. We get change and transformation. And so graduates can engage with the world in a more courageous, nuanced way because they understand things about themselves and can do and move places internally. You know, the I'm reminded of the, oh, White Sulphur Springs. I just took a, took a deep breath. But the, the fountain at White Sulphur Springs that says all things change when we do. People who are graduates know this, but on the last day, there's the student talks where they, you know, talk about what they do in the world. And, and I'm always struck by how many people say, but now I want to, and it has some sort of like do good communal new declaration of what they want to do and who they want to be when they go back into the world. Yeah. It's, it's caring about the world we live in and seeing community in a different way. I think 2020 has been very interesting in uh, getting a mirror back at us as American society on how many of us take on the collective responsibility that we have, the collectivism in general. Like we are a collective, and this is a this is a society that is, um, I think, leans towards individual priority. And this is a moment where we need to act collectively. Yeah. I was a history major, and I remember uh, more and more recently some of the work we used to study around rugged individualism and the, the closing of the American frontier and all of this, of this narrative, this mythology as Americans we get around individualism. I'm with you. It's power. It's powerful conditioning, isn't it? It is. And this is, if we're really, there's so many gifts and lessons of 2020, and this is one of them. Are we, you know, do we choose the individual or do we choose the collective? And, and, and that's a question to pose for the individual and for the, the, the macro level. What kind of country do we want to be? What kind of culture do we want to be? Do you have a favorite question you ask guests or is there a question that you like more than others? I haven't developed that quite yet, honestly. I'm still trying to figure out my rhythm with this. I'm, I'm catching up still. What's your favorite? Well, I don't know if it's my, I think my favorite is the one about um, where are you in your process? Because I think it helps make sense and it helps form the narrative about what that experience was. So that when, when we go away from the process, we can go to moments in time and make sense of those moments in time and draw meaning from those moments in time. Um, and so that's why I like that, that particular question. But, but a, a question I was thinking about in this moment is kind of a meta one of, yeah, we've been chatting about an hour now. What's... Uh, What's that like for, for you on a, on a Sunday morning to have had this conversation? How are you, what do you notice? This is a question you ask. That's such a sweet question. <laughs> I love it. It's a whole other opening. We're going to talk another hour now, Drew. <laughs> well, I just, you know what? I, I'll tell you my genuine feel is how much I love you. It's, I can't believe how much we know about each other and how much we don't know about each other. 
I mean, when I think Drew Horning, I think like a brother, somebody I know so well. And then you, there were so many things that you said today that I didn't even know about. And also just being on the receiving end of you listening to me. I honestly, Drew, I feel, I feel so seen and loved by you. Thank you for that. I, uh, I am making me choke up a little bit. I, um, it's, it is the crazy thing about teaching together, but also about students who become grads together is that the really superficial things in some way uh, go, these details go untracked between people. And what does get tracked is spirit to spirit and um, connection from a heart level, a deep soulful level. Oh, that's, that's exactly such a beautiful distinction. The my spirit to spirit connection you didn't change today, but my kind of like earthly body connection, I learned a little bit more about you. And, and I, and I for you as well. And that little girl growing up and all the internal, I'm, I'm such an extrovert, Sharon, in my family. It was like talk or you're going to be buried. So I learned how to, <laughs> I learned how to talk. I learned how to engage in an, a, the cacophony of family dynamic. And, and when I hear you, it's like, wow, so much of your early formative experiences were silent with you alone. That's, that's a depth of connection to yourself. It was not easy because I, like you, am so extroverted. And all I wanted was to feel quote unquote normal. It was a distant dream to imagine being in my house with a person who I love with my family there too. And, and just to put everybody at ease, that is a reality. But I, I had no idea I would get there. Oh, I just could keep talking to you. That's, I'm, I'm sad to end it right now because I, I, I could just keep talking to you for hours. Thank you for this fantastic conversation. I love you. I love you, Drew. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.